0: We are, it's more than just a champ. We are inspirational creators, difference makers, world changers, and we are one community. Join alums, Jared and Ross, as they uncover stories of Penn Staters and their unique professional and personal journeys. We are Penn State, and this is Lion Legacy.
1: All right. Episode 26 of Lion Legacy Mid August, and we are that much closer to kicking off the Penn State football season in Wisconsin, Ross. Yep. We will be there. We got Got tickets. tickets. Yep. We got the Airbnb. We got our buddies going. We got two more people, Andy and John. We're going to head to Chicago, drive up to Madison, Wisconsin. Yep. And hopefully secure that first victory of the season
2: it'll be fun we kind of got on the pre-pandemic penn state uh, football travel bug we took a little trip a couple of years ago back in 19 down to college park for the penn state maryland game that drubbing that we had listeners will remember 59 to nothing was it on a friday night that was fun but after that jared's really was on board with hey we got to go to some away games and here we are now two years later and uh, we'll be in madison We missed
1: Virginia Tech, though, last
2: year. Got canceled. Yeah, Yeah. we
1: we got that lined up. And then we already have Auburn 2022 booked, got the house, just need the tickets, which obviously will will be next summer. Yeah, we'll
2: get there. We'll get there. But, yeah, we're very excited for the football season. Coach Franklin and the team are are signing some great recruits for the future years. It's hard to not be excited about some of these top prospects that will be coming to Happy Valley in 2022 and beyond so certainly a lot to look forward to but first the 2021 team we're excited for and uh, before we know it the season will get started and will be another football season upon us and we got to give a
1: a a plug yes for our sponsor Lions Pride of course because they always have the best and I mean this seriously yeah the best gear and you mentioned this early on as well when it comes to Nike coaches sideline gear that's the place you want to go that's right Yep. We'll need to go on lions-pride.com and make sure we're we're all Penn Stated out right. for, for the Wisconsin
2: game. You know what it's like? I don't know about you, Jared, but I think I feel like we're all cut from the same cloth as Penn Staters. right? When you're in the Lions Pride and you're like, I have a whole drawer full of shirts. I have t-shirts, long-sleeve shirts. I have sweatshirts. I have shorts. You name it. You have everything with Penn State on it. And it's not like the stuff goes bad. You just keep accumulating more and more. But. It's like when you're in the supermarket and you're like, do I need milk? Yeah, we're probably going to go through the milk. Let's just get another gallon of milk. You get it anyway because you're, you're going to use it. There you go. you got to get your new Penn State gear. You know you'll use it. And so what's one more shirt? Just get a new one.
1: Yeah. And Nike's always so good at just like new designs too, right? That's like right. Yeah. You look no, you, over the years yeah. and you're you like, know. okay, this is completely different than last right. year and the year before. It's not
2: like Penn State has 30 different logos, but <laughs> you know, still, it's like you need your variety.
1: Exactly. Yeah. exactly.
2: Good. Let's talk about Dave Jones. Dave week. Jones. So Dave Jones joined us. Great conversation. He wins the award for being our most tenured guest. He graduated from Penn State in 1954. Jared, that is right? 19, 19- 1954 and had a really cool career. He spent a lot of time at the Wall Street Journal and the New York Times. He was editor in different bureaus for the newspaper, told us some really cool stories from the 60s, what he covered, what he was involved. He made a visit to the White House at some point. I'm not going to give away that story, but that's just a little teaser. I've always, I'm going to sound like a little bit of a dinosaur here, Jared, but I've always been a fan of newspapers and, and my sister will make fun of me, but I used to come home from school, like when I was in high school, and I would come home, snack, I'd pull out the newspaper and I would read the sports section. That's what we had at the early days of the internet. Again, I'm dating myself here, but I just, I love reading the newspaper. And even like up until about, I don't know, 10 years ago, like I still actually enjoyed getting a Sunday paper. And just for the heck of it, it was just something nostalgic about reading the paper on a Sunday morning with a cup of coffee. And even though I could easily at that point, get it on my phone, but it was just, just enjoyable. I find it to be enjoyable. Other people can't be bothered. And don't worry for those just keeping track at home. I, I don't get newspapers anymore. I, I do read them. But I do support them. And I, I do pay for a subscription so I can access all the content online. Shout out Philadelphia Inquirer. And we need to also give a shout out
1: because you just said shout out to yeah. his wife, who's also yeah. a Penn Stater. That's right. Is- in the room with us, yeah, she the was room with him, yep, yep, and making sure that he told all the stories that he needed to tell. It was she pretty was, funny. Was- I don't
2: know how it got edited, but you may hear his wife, uh, Dave's wife, in the background throwing in some little nuggets, like you know, because she was also the editor of the Collegian during her days at Penn State. It was cute.
1: Love the couple. Yeah, yeah.
2: Yep. And with that, we'll hit the print button on our conversation with Dave Jones. <laughs>
1: All right, let's welcome Dave Jones, 1954 Penn State graduate with a degree in journalism. While at Penn State, Dave was the editor of the Daily Collegian and a member of Parma New. After graduating, he served in the U.S. Air Force before going, to, going on to lead a prestigious career in journalism at both the Wall Street Journal and the New York Times. Dave received Penn State's Distinguished Alumnus Award in 1979 and the Alumni Fellow Award in 1987. Truly dedicated to improving Penn State, he served on the Board of Trustees from 1997 to 2012. Dave, we're really looking forward to this conversation.
2: Welcome to Lion Legacy.
0: Thank you very much, Jared.
2: Dave, uh, certainly a very impressive background, which we're going to dive into in just a moment here. But first and foremost, I want to thank you for your service to the great country when you were in the Air Force many years ago. What were the two years like when you were in the Air Force?
0: I defended America from Dayton, Ohio. The uh, Korean War broke out two weeks after I graduated. But because I had enrolled at Penn State, I had to join the ROTC. And because I was in the ROTC, I was deferred from the draft. Many of my high school classmates were drafted for the Korean War. But I was exempt because I was in ROTC and i spent four years in rotc at penn state and by the time i got out of rotc the war was over the war ended in 53 and i graduated in 54. so it was peacetime service and i appreciate your gesture but it wasn't uh, hardly a challenge it was a very pleasant time but it uh, was not a wartime
1: that's okay service to the u.s is is still something very commendable so thank you as as well dave given your history with the Daily Collegian. I think you'll be very happy to know this. We have a great partnership with the student newspaper. Students actually have the opportunity to submit questions for our guests. And this question comes from Jack Maustow, a senior studying political science. Jack says you were a reporter for both the Wall Street Journal and the New York Times in a number of cities. What were some of your favorite assignments? Any specific stories that stand out?
0: One of the best stories I did at the journal was, I broke the story on the first butane lighter. What do you think of that? But one of the stories I did at the journal was in Pittsburgh when Kaiser Steel was secretly negotiating a labor agreement with the Steelworkers Union to try to come up with an innovative labor agreement that would avoid strikes and stockpiling and inventorying and things like that. It was quite creative. And I got a copy of that document, and it was so complicated that I had got an official of another steel company in confidence to help me understand it. Uh, so that I could write a story about it, I knew it was important, but I didn't quite understand why. And uh, broke the story, and it led the paper, and it was a pretty exciting time. I did win the National Loeb Award for business reporting that year for that story. for For a long time, people were curious about who leaked the story, and I could now say, 50 years later, that I was covering the steel negotiations during this time, and I was in a hotel in Pittsburgh where the negotiations were going on, and I was walking down a hallway, and there was a room, there's a stack of documents on a table. And I looked in the door and I thought, hmm, I wonder what those documents are. There's nobody in the room. And it was a pile of these proposed labor agreements. And I picked one up and put it in my pocket and walked out. And that was what it was. And that's how I got it. And nobody leaked it to me at all. It was my enterprise from stealing the document from the pile in the, in the office in the hotel. So that's, that's what reporters do. <laughs> we don't always steal things, but we, we are very tricky. One of the other stories that I remember was interviewing President Johnson in 1968, not long after he had decided not to run for re election. I was in the Washington Bureau of the Times. I was doing a story on the Johnson Library, uh, of all things, and uh, everybody wanted to interview Johnson about why he wasn't running and so forth. And people were clamoring; It was a great competition and nobody was getting the interview. But the White House found out I was doing the story on the library. So they said, Mrs. Johnson is very interested in the library. How would you like to talk with her? I said, sure, I'll talk to Mrs. Johnson. So I went over and talked to Mrs. Johnson and she said, you know, the person you really need to talk to about the library is the president. She said, would you be able to talk to the president? I said, yes, I might be able to. So uh, she arranged for me to, to talk to the president. Well, of course, we did talk about the library, but I used that opportunity to talk as much as I could ply out of him about what his views were and what his plans were and so forth. And, and before I went back to interview him, I went to my boss in the Washington Bureau. I said, everybody wants this interview with Johnson. I've got an interview with Johnson, the library. Do you want me to go ahead with it? He said, absolutely. So we got a page one story out of that. And I guess the, there are other stories, but those are two that are fun.
2: L- love that story, Dave. It's, it's funny, like you went in for one story, you end up with both. Did you still end up writing the story about the library?
0: Oh, yeah. Yeah. Another story that, that I got was interesting. H.L. Hunt, who was a Dallas oil billionaire, was believed to be a big funder of Barry Goldwater. In the presidential campaign, and I was in Detroit, and my editor said, go down to Dallas and interview H.L. Trent. Trud- well, H. L. nobody interviewed H.L. Hunt. Uh, he just was very reclusive. And I called, and I tried to get an interview and so forth, and I couldn't get one. So I went to Dallas, and I read all the clips and everything, and did all my research. And then I went down to his office, I appeared at his office to his secretary, and I said, I'm David Jones. I'm from the New York Times. I'm here to, in the hope to see Mr. Hunt. I didn't have an appointment. And she said, sit down and wait. And I waited a little bit. Then Mr. Hunt comes out, and I got the interview with Mr. Hunt, and so I got two good stories, including a Page One story out of that. It turned out he wasn't really supporting Goldwater because he thought Goldwater was going to lose, and he didn't support losers. Although he was a convert, he wasn't going to throw good money after bad. But it was a very—it was just entertaining.
2: Excellent. So uh, Dave, you've certainly worked for, for two of the most prestigious papers in the world. This is a two-part question. First, what made you move from the journal to the Times? And then secondly, what were some of the differences that you experienced between those two papers?
0: Those are good questions. Uh, yeah, I was very happy at the journal. They treated me very well. I was enjoying my work and so forth. And I I was in Pittsburgh, and I got a phone call from Harrison Salisbury, who was the National News Director of the Times, saying, we'd like to talk to you about a job, which shocked me. And I said, I'd be happy to talk to you. I'm not looking for a job, but I'd be happy to talk to you. And I did talk to him. And and they did offer me a job, much to my surprise. And it was an extremely difficult choice to make. In fact, it's the only time in my life I went on medication. I went on Valium because it was such a difficult decision. And I finally made the decision, I think it was the right decision, because The reason I did it was it enabled me to paint on a broader canvas. I admired the journal. The journal was a great paper. It was an up-and-coming paper at that time, not what it is today, not as big as it was today, but it's really a good paper. I thought the Times would give me an opportunity. It had an international staff, a national staff. It covered more than business. It covered politics and science and other things like that. While the journal did a good job of covering those things from a a business standpoint, I thought the Times would offer me a broader opportunity, which it did, and I think was the right decision. What was the second question?
2: (laughs) The second question was, so your experience while working at each of the papers, how do they differ?
0: Well, that's an interesting question. When I was at the Journal, it was up and coming. It only had a circulation of 250,000, and later it was over a million. But they had a genius as a publisher there, and he had a great vision for the paper, which was realized. People type the Wall Street Journal as a conservative paper, and the New York Times is a liberal paper. And so they figure if you're working for the Journal, you have to be a conservative that if you're working as a reporter for The Times, you have to be liberal. And that's absolute nonsense. I mean, you're a reporter, you're a reporter. And The Times didn't hire me saying, we've seen all that stuff you're writing for The Wall Street Journal. That's bunk. We want you to write liberal stuff for The Times. They hired me because of what I was writing for The Journal. And so the change was really extremely minimal. One thing that I should point out The former executive editor of the New York Times came to the Times years ago from the Wall Street Journal. The current managing editor of the New York Times, Joe Kahn, came to the Times from the Wall Street Journal. So there's a back and forth there. The Times has lost people to the Journal too. The concept of being liberal and conservative reporter is influenced by the editorial pages of the newspapers. And those editorial pages have nothing to do with the news content of the paper. Now, I can't comment about what changes have happened under Murdoch at the journal. I don't know any journal people anymore, but I do know the journal has a long tradition of wonderful journalism. They have terrific reporters. And I think if you're a good reporter, you're just a good reporter. What's your motivation? Is your motivation to find out what's really happening? Is your motivation to sell a point of view?
1: I want to dive a little bit more into reporting. And I think we all take for granted today how easy it is to get something published on the internet, right? One click and it could be read by. Millions. Of people right. easily. W- what was that process like for you?
0: We had things both uh, at the Collegian and then at the Journal and at the Times called typewriters, that you would sit down and put a piece of paper in and type on a piece of paper. And at the end of that, you would give the paper to a guy who had a pencil, who would mark it up with a pencil and would send it to the composing room where a guy operating a Linotype would churn out a little pieces of lead type and they'd put it in a frame called a chase. And- They'd put it in the printing press and run the printing press and you'd put the paper out that night and then you'd go home and you'd come back and you'd do it all over again the next day. You had two or three deadlines in the evening for breaking news, but basically you had one product a day and you didn't have to deal with changing events constantly affecting your work during the day. Today, it's an entirely different situation. Everything is instantaneous because of the internet and social media and everything is happening all the time. The demands are severe on reporters. And the problem is that the speed at which things are done, I think, runs a higher risk of causing error. Now, there's some mentality that I put it out, but I can correct it. Yeah, you can correct it. But in the meantime, a lot of people have got false information. I'm not saying it's a bad thing. I'm just saying it's a challenge. So the whole dynamic has changed.
1: Yeah, there's definitely seems to be the race to be first nowadays.
0: There's always been a race to be first. There's always been tension between being first and being right. But I don't think if you're first and it's wrong, you're not first, you're just wrong. So you have to just balance that out and hold your breath for being correct rather than just first and saying, oh, well, I don't care if it's accurate now because I can change it in 15 minutes. That's not journalism in my view.
2: Excellent point. So then moving on within your career, Dave, in the early 1970s, you moved from a reporter to being an editor. What was that transition like? And did you initially enjoy the change in responsibilities?
0: I decided that editing was my future when I was at the Collegiate. I thought I was a good reporter. I think I was a good reporter. And if I'd stayed at it, I think I would have you know, been successful at it and so forth. But I felt editing was more my gig. And And I guess it's just a matter of power. If you're an editor, you could have more influence over the total product than you can as an individual reporter. And I had ideas about what I want to do and what journalism should be and where we should go and so forth, and I thought I would be better able to put those ideas into process and get them achieved if I was an editor than if I was simply a reporter. And I don't mean to to criticize reporters. I think reporters are wonderful people. Also, I, I recognized early on that reporting is really a young man's game. It requires an enormous amount of energy and sacrifice, family and so forth. And it's harder to do as you get older. You know, I was a young man at the time. I made the change. I was in my thirties, but I felt that over the long haul in journalism, that's, that was a path that would be better for me. And I think that's true.
2: So you mentioned a moment ago, the, how you wanted to influence the change. So let's dive into that a little bit more. What were some of the, as an editor, what were some of the changes that you were able to implement during your time?
0: One of the things that I got involved in early on was the creation of the New York Times CBS poll, political polling, which was at that time, there was very little political polling. And what was done was done by politicians. And they would do these polls with Gallup and other people. And then they would tell you what their polls do. I trust what their poll said. Are they telling me everything that their poll said or are they using this just to slant the story and control the story and so forth? And I began to think, why don't we do our own polling? And I wasn't the only one who was thinking that. And so we developed a way to do some of our own polling and uh, kind of broke the way to uh, use polling journalistically in for, for journalistic institutions. That was one of the things uh, that I did. Another thing that I did, and I'm a little reluctant to talk about this, but I did open the way for a lot of women at The Times to move forward. Uh, when I became national editor in 1972, we did not have a woman on the national reporting staff or on the national copy desk. And I had uh, met a woman when I worked in Detroit who worked for the Detroit News, who I I was a crackerjack editor from what I knew. And when I became national editor, the first opening I got, I said, I think I want to hire a woman. And so I offered her a job. She got the job. And, you know, it's like the old boys network becoming the old girls network because my experience was if you hire somebody who's really good, you go to that person and you say, is there anybody else at home like you? And so I went to her when I had the next opening. I said, anybody else? I didn't say, do you know any women? I said, do you know anybody else who would be uh, be good? Well, she knew women. And, you know, we ended up with eight of the 20 editors on our desk were women, which was uh, in the 70s, which was unheard of. In fact, people from other desks would come and steal my people uh, because they wanted women in their operations. So people gave me a lot of credit for that. It wasn't me that did it. It's the women. I don't like to brag on what I did.
1: I don't think that's bragging at all. I think you've certainly have helped pave a pathway. For not only the women during that time but for for many other women down the road so i'm glad you brought that up and it's something that we certainly admire and respect quite a bit thank so you. thank you for that
0: jared i think one of the more consequential things that i was able to achieve at the times so when i was national editor in 1980 the paper decided to start printing also in chicago because we had a a lot of readers there. We we had to fly the paper out. It was costing us a lot of money to fly it. And we concluded that it might be cheaper just to print it there. So they started printing it there and it was quite successful. And that was the end of the plan at that time. And I, as I said, I was national editor and I began to argue and I became the biggest advocate in the newsroom for expanding national circulation of the times saying that we should add more plants and in 1987 I was made editor of the National Editions and I really pushed the issue at that point because I pointed out that we were based in New York and most of our circulation was in the New York area and the the growth, the, the economic growth of the Northeast was slowing, was very small, but the country was really growing economically and in terms of population. In the South and the West. And I said, if we want to have more readers, that's where we should go and we should start printing there. I ran into a lot of the resistance uh, and I presented them with some data which showed that from 1980 to 1987, 90% of our circulation growth and 100% of our Sunday circulation growth was outside the New York Northeastern area. And that began to persuade them. And so finally, we decided to start printing in many places around the country we built our circulation to a sizable number and the thing that was so important about that was not only the revenue advertising and circulation revenue that we got in the readership but it laid the basis for the readership so when the internet came along we already had a national readership and so we were able to leverage that and to make more of a success more rapidly of our internet service so i was pretty pleased with being able to advocate that and achieve it. And it was uh, provided a big foundation for the times to expand when the internet came along. When we
1: talk about reporting and you look at the media landscape today, knowing that you have quite an extensive background, is there someone today that you think, wow, he or she does a really stellar job and stands out?
0: You know, I knew you were going to ask me that question. And the, the name that immediately popped in my it, and it's really unfair. Because first of all, there are scores and scores of terrific reporters, many of whom I don't know. And so it's, who do I know? And then of course I'm biased for the Times. The first name that popped into my mind was Maggie Haber, who's a reporter for the New York Times and is an amazing woman who does terrific reporting for the Times. And she just popped into my mind. But there are a lot of people. One of the best people in journalism at the Times is a guy named Bob McFadden, who's been there 60 years and writes obituaries. Roger Cohen, who uh, who has been a columnist and is now Paris Bureau Chief of the Times. And if, if you want to learn about Donald Rumsfeld, read Bob McFadden's obituary, which just ran last week. When you think back, iconically, there are people like Neil Sheehan, who broke the Watergate, the Pentagon paper, Homer Biggert, who was a, was a celebrated Herald Tribune and Times reporter, a guy named David Barstow. I actually discovered Barstow, and this was after I retired, actually. I was working as a headhunter, the Times had asked me to help them recruit people because I had something of a record of finding good people. The first person I found was Barstow, and I brought his clips in and put them on the desk of the executive editor and said, we've got to hire this guy. It took him a couple days to read the clips, and he came out and he says it's a no brainer. He recently uh, left the Times and became a professor of journalism, of all things. I was saying John Herbers, who covered the civil rights movement, but those are people of the past.
1: I'm curious, you mentioned that you served as a headhunter and you seem to have a really good knack for identifying reporters. What, in your opinion makes a, a good reporter and journalist.
0: I think the main thing that reporters need is curiosity. You know, the standard thing you say in journalism is the questions are who, what, what, why, or why. Those are the questions you want to ask, who, what, when, why. And, but why is the most important question. Why is this happening? And you want reporters who are curious about why things are happening. What Just tell me what's going on. And then you need people who are authentically Honest, you need a reporter who doesn't have an axe to grind, who, who just really wants to know what's going on and tells the complete story. And we all have our own personal experiences and we need to try to comb that out. Basically the way I hired people was I interviewed people that they worked with and I read their clips and you want to get a good writer. And and what if you ever call somebody for a reference and you say, I'm thinking of hiring this person, what do you think of them? And the person you're calling pauses Even Even for a second, you may not want to hire this person (laughs) because that person's collecting their thoughts about what they want to say. And my experience has been when you get the right person, that person on the phone says they're terrific hire. Anyway, that's not a very comprehensive story, but that's a story I have to tell.
1: No, thanks for sharing that for sure. I'm curious if the New York Times called you up tomorrow and said, we want you to come and address the staff today. What would your
0: message be? Keep the faith. I mean, I think that journalists today face enormous challenges because of the internet and social media and all kinds of reasons. And I think that you just have to you have to stick with it. I, I've, I've just basically said what I think about people I would look to hire. And I think you just have to lay aside your own personal bias as much as you can. Nobody can do that totally and just try to, to be an honest broker to tell people what's going on. It's really God's work. It's an important thing
1: to do. Well, let's transition now into the lion's den brought to you by our friends at lions pride and reminisce about your time at Penn state. And just remember when you want to show off your Penn state pride, visit lions pride.com for the latest and greatest apparel and merchandise.
2: Dave. So how did you choose uh, Penn state back in the early 1950s? And then how did your experience as a student differ from the university that we all know and love today?
0: Okay, I had an uncle who went to Penn State in, after World War I, and he was on the football team. And he became uh, a trustee of the university many years later. For years, was a very powerful trustee. He was not a, an uncle I was particularly close to, but he had that Penn State experience. And my father went to Penn State for one semester, but dropped out and never did finish. So I was the first one in my family to go, in my direct immediate family, to go to college. And I grew up in southwestern Pennsylvania, 50 miles south of Pittsburgh. Five people in my senior class went to Penn State. And there weren't any other places. There was West Virginia University, which was 36 miles away. We had a classmate at high school who went to University of Michigan. Everybody was aghast that he would go all the way to Michigan to college. And the Ivy Leagues, and I knew Princeton existed because because I was a Presbyterian, but that's the only reason I knew it existed. So it was just kind of the place that you went. I had another uncle that went to Penn State as well. When I went, I think the tuition was $125 a semester. And the admission was easy. If you finished in the top three-fifths of your high school class, you were automatically admitted to Penn State if you wanted to go. And there were no SAT tests or anything like that. And then it had a, what was respected at the time, journalism school, which I think was the thing that really turned the key on that. I had got up. I was editor of my high school news paper and I'd gone to Penn State on a trip. And I think that tended to to make it happen. So that's the real reason I went. And it worked out, I think, pretty well. At that time, Penn State had 11,000 students. Beaver Stadium seated something like 20,000 people. One season they played four home games and the total attendance for the four games was 82,000 people. It was a very conservative, parochial kind of school. It didn't have a huge academic reputation, and it was a fairly small town. The transportation was more difficult than it is today, and it was isolated up in central Pennsylvania. Milton Eisenhower became president in 1950, just before I went there, and he made a significant change in the academic stature of the university, which became named university in my senior year at Penn State. It was Penn State College. I, I was in the first class to get a, a college degree from Penn State University, which raised its status. And then, when we joined the Big Ten many years ago, and, and under Bryce Jordan, the stature of the universities increased academically quite materially since that time. And of course, the size has increased, so it's a much bigger deal. And as I said, being in the Big Ten, it's more than just being. It's more than just a football consortium. It's an academic consortium as well. and People don't really recognize that. So I think that was a big lift for the university academically. I think it's a much better university today than it was when I went there. And I don't. I guess I could get in, but I wouldn't be in the Shire Auto School.
1: That's all right. You'll get in. We'll accept you again.
0: Oh, it's all you good.
1: Me. You know. You know. We had to ask a, a question again about your time at the Daily Collegian, Dave. And only fitting that it actually comes from the business manager at the Daily Collegian I mentioned before we've got a great relationship Liz Daly is actually my primary contact there she's a senior studying public relations and Liz wants to know how did your experiences at the Collegian help to transition you into the professional working world?
0: Well hi Liz thanks for that question Um, my experience at the Collegian was seminal to my professional and uh, personal life it was a it gave me practical experience working as a journalist at the student level and uh, hands-on experience. That was crucial when I got out of the Air Force and was being hired because I had experience. And I also had clips. And I had a body of work that I would not have had if I did not work at the Collegiate for four years. So it was absolutely essential. And I think it's important for people to recognize that it's crucial for the university to have organizations of this type uh, that teach journalism in a practical way and broadcast and other things in other fields. Because if the College of Communication is going to uh, have a strong reputation nationally. It's got to have student publications and student broadcast, and Internet and things like that uh, where the students can actually get the experience of uh, working in the field in addition to the academic education and the growing, growing up that takes place when you go to college.
2: So Dave, you referenced the um, Penn State football when you were there, but we want to get into that a little bit more. We usually don't talk too much about Penn State football on the podcast, but you were a student when Rip Engel was a coach and uh, Coach Paterno was an assistant. And so yeah. you've seen Penn State football change over many years. What else was it like uh, seeing the game back when you were a student?
0: Penn State football was always important, but when I was there, the the classes were so small that all the students attended the game. We got tickets as part of being a student. The students attended the games and it was very exciting and we had wooden goal posts and we would tear them down and so forth and my wife and I in fact when we were in in Ohio we went to see Penn State play Ohio State in Columbus which is an experience I must say and uh, Ohio State was ranked this was 1957, 58 I guess. Ohio State was ranked in the top 10 in the country and Penn State was not ranked at all and we won the game 7-6 and we went crazy. So we used to, go a couple times we went down to university of pennsylvania we used to play the university of pennsylvania in philadelphia we played a different level of football we played different lower ranked teams we didn't play we didn't play alabama but it was always an important thing at the university but it wasn't nearly as big a deal as it is now with 110,000.
1: toughest question of them all favorite penn state memory
0: several favorite penn state memories. uh one is, uh, that's where I met my wife. My editor here is watching me closely. <laughs> good,
1: That's a good answer, a good and, answer.
0: And the way that happened was that when I was there, we had this sophisticated communication system where we would, when we had copy to, to go to the printer, the Center of Daily Times printed the paper and they were downtown and we were in the basement of the Collegium, was in the basement of the Carnegie building. Our new people on the staff would be asked to carry the copy down to the printer. And I was asked if on my way home for dinner, to my fraternity house, I wouldn't mind taking this new candidate down to the CDT on the way home to show her where to take the copy uh, on these kind of runs. And it happens to be the woman that I ended up marrying. So that's uh, quite a memory. I remember graduation. That was a very, very nice memory. And I guess those are two of the more memorable. And being named, being named editor of the Collegian, of course, was something that I remember fondly. Those would probably be the three things I would say.
2: Excellent. Dave, if you could visit with yourself as an 18 year old freshman entering Pennsylvania State College, as we learned, what
0: advice would you share? You know, I don't know. That's a really tough question. I think, uh, I guess, take it seriously. One of the things that's concerned me about the pandemic and the remote education is that I think that at least 50%, maybe 60% or more of the experience of going to college is not just academic, it's social. And it's learning how to grow up and being a good human being. I would say also try to explore as many new opportunities as you can. If I went back to college, I might study philosophy instead of journalism. My wife thinks that's nonsense, but... <laughs> anyway I took a course on Shakespeare's literature for example which which was really important to me and it's not something you can easily do elsewhere so I say I would say dip in dip your toe into a, a variety of, of academic fields and I guess the main thing I would say about life in general is you have to follow your heart I think that you have to go after something I've known a lot of people who go to work every day and can't stand it, I would not have survived in a life like that. I chose a field that I thought I would love. I did love it. There were bad times. There were difficult times. But overall, I loved the work I did, and I was proud of what I did, and I thought it was important. So do something that you really love. Do something that you think is important. Don't do something just for the money.
2: Excellent advice. Thank you. And Dave, last question. You were a part of the the board of trustees for about 15 years from the late 90s until 2012. And since you finished up on the board, how do you feel most connected to the university?
0: Well, uh, to be be frank about it, my connection to the university has faded over the years because of my, first of all, my age, but also I was sitting trustee until 2012. And now I'm an emeritus trustee and time passes by and you have to turn the page. I'm a Penn State fan. I concerned about what goes on. I read the Penn State stuff that's sent out by the university and the Alumni Association every day. We're life members of the Penn State Alumni Association. We've attended uh, many uh, alumni events. We watch every football game religiously, but basically we've drifted away. We're not there anymore, and it's for other people to manage and, and, and to enjoy.
1: That's okay. You certainly have, have left the legacy of all the work that you've done over the years for Penn State. Both Ross and I actually want to thank you for spending the time with us this evening. I think we both really knew that you were going to have some interesting stories because we knew at the heart you are a true storyteller. So thank you for sharing some great stories with us. But I just love the the thought around the passion, right? And you following your heart from early on and reporting with the foundation of honesty and integrity. And then the other aspect that really stood out to me, and you were a little, I would say, unwilling or reluctant to share, but I'm glad you did, was the aspect of championing women. And that's something, to, even today, we have a lot of work to do. But you took that first step in a time where it was not very common at all. It has helped many women get to where they are today, and it will help many women get to where they need to be, and we all want them to be tomorrow.
0: Could I add a footnote to that?
1: You can certainly add a footnote, please.
0: Um, I've often asked, in fact, I discussed with my wife recently why this happened. And my experience at the Collegian w- was working with a lot of really smart women, and including her. I didn't see any difference in what they could do and what I could do. And when I was a high school newspaper editor, my co-editor was a woman. And when we got out of Penn State, my wife got a job as a reporter at the Dayton Journal Herald in Dayton, Ohio, while I was in the Air Force. So she was a newspaper reporter. And yeah, and she said, all it's all thanks to Penn State. And to me, it was just common sense. And then, of course, I had a daughter <laughs> and nobody was going to stand in her way. <laughs> so, it's interesting. It's interesting and I think a lot of uh, that happened because of my experience at the Collegian with accomplished women.
1: Well, good on you for for continuing as I mentioned to champion and you said common sense, but unfortunately back then it was not all that common. So, <laughs> thank you. We certainly <laughs> wish you a lot of luck, continued health in your retirement with your true editor of chief and we always end with we are
0: and State. Lion. Lion Legacy is a Baruta production. If you enjoyed this Labor of Love podcast, we'd certainly appreciate it if you would subscribe and write us a review on your favorite podcast platform.